You are listening to the new Mutual Audio Network. Welcome home. The following audio drama is rated R and is recommended restricted for anyone under the age of 17. Hello? Jack? Jack, oh. Oh, well, at least you're here. Uh, Good morning. Although things have gotten quite dark out there. It is, of course, October, the spooky month on the Sonic Society, the world's largest showcase of modern audio drama. Well, to be fair, it's spooky everywhere. I know plenty of people who have just been waiting for October to come around. But anyway, I'm one of your hosts, David Alt, and the other, Jack Ward, said he'd meet me here. Apparently it was a dare in the Mutual Audio Network building that we couldn't spend four shows out in the gardening shed. It is said, although I don't know by whom, that years ago a terrible series of murders occurred out here by previous tenants, and Jack had scoffed, as Jack is wont to do at times, until he agreed for both of us, as he often does, to broadcast out here. Well, I'd best get the introductions done more quickly then. This week, our features are The Nightlight, winner of Best Fiction Podcast featuring creepy stories written by and performed by black actors. This week, we have episode 101, Letters from Home by Justina Ireland, and the bonus episode, Stories of Love and Revenge. And they all begin right here in the Sonic Society. I'm Tanya Thompson, horror writer and creator of Nightlight, the Black Horror Podcast. This week we celebrate our very first full episode with a new story from Justina Ireland, best-selling author of Dread Nation. If you haven't read Dread Nation yet, you're missing out on my favorite read of this year. Today's story gives us a little taste of the Dread Nation world, one overrun with zombies in post-Civil War America. But don't worry, this is a standalone story, so if you haven't read Dread Nation, you'll be able to fall right in and won't hear any spoilers. And if you have read Dread Nation, well, you'll get your fix for black girls trained in skilled combat against the undead to hold you over until the sequel comes out. So without further ado, here's Letters from Home by Justina Ireland. Sue lay in her bed and examined the letter in her hands. She'd swiped it off of Miss Preston's desk earlier in the day on a whim, and now she didn't have a clue what to do with it. She didn't know what it said. She'd never learned to read, and Miss Preston's School of Combat for Negro Girls didn't include reading in the curriculum. Killing the dead? Yes. Learning to set a fine dinner table? Most certainly. But reading? What Negro girl needed to learn her letters? But Sue, Big Sue, to the rest of the girls at Miss Preston's on account of her size, had seen letters like the one she held. Back when Jane McKean had been a student, she'd always carried letters from home, like the one in Sue's hand. Sometimes, she'd read them aloud. Sue liked to listen to Jane read and tell stories about her mama back at Rose Hill. But Sue's own mother was long gone, taken by the dead when Sue was too young to remember, and Jane's own mother seemed as good a replacement as any. Sue was considering asking one of the uppity northern girls to read the letter for her in the morning when the screaming started. Sue rolled out of bed, hitting the floor in a low crouch. Her nightshirt tangled around her legs, and the echoing slap of bare feet hitting wood planks filled the room as the rest of the girls did the same as they woke. Shamblers, one of them whispered. In the school? Another asked with a quaver in her voice. Seems like, answered Sue, her voice deep and low. She wasn't known for being chatty. And this really wasn't the time to get into a lengthy dialogue about the likelihood of the dead, known as shamblers because of their lumbering walk, being inside of the combat school. Truth was, Sue knew this was going to happen sooner or later. The dead always found a way. When the dead began to walk at the Battle of Gettysburg, everything had changed. 
And here on 17 years later, it was the combat schools, decreed by law and enforced by white folks, that were supposed to keep everyone safe. So it was a keen irony indeed that the dead roamed the halls of the very place established to kill them. Sue was a girl who could appreciate a fine bit of irony. What do we do? asked another girl. Sue didn't know the voice. It was hard to tell what was happening in the gloom of their room, but most of the girls were younger and less experienced than Sue, who was due to graduate any day now. We fight, Sue said. Get dressed quickly. Boots, bloomers, leggings. Leave off the modesty course if we ain't got time and get ready to move. We got to get to the arms room and get our weapons. The silence erupted into a hurried shuffling as the girls, nearly 20 in all, dressed. Sue was in her sleep shirt and pulled on a dress and leggings, quickly tying the stays and tucking the letter away for later. The mystery of it pulled her, and she'd keep it for now. While the rest of the girls dressed, Sue approached the closed door and pressed her ear to the wood. The mournful howls of the dead grew louder as they grew closer. If the girls didn't move soon, there would be no hope of snagging a bladed weapon and wasn't a body alive that wanted to face a shambler, barehanded. Once most of the girls were dressed, Sue found the second eldest girl, a light-skinned girl, by the name of Sarah. Sarah's people were from up north, and Sue didn't much care for her. Sarah was very proud of the fact that her people had been free since the Revolutionary War, as though that had mattered when it came time to round up Negroes for the combat schools. We need to break up into two groups, Sue said. Sarah sniffed. You do what you want. I'm going it alone. I'm not going to waste my time trying to herd cats. A look at a couple of the younger girls made her point abundantly clear. Sue turned back to the other girls, ignoring Sarah. She knew a lost cause when she saw one, and if she had to get everyone to safety herself, she would. Folks might think Sue was dumb because she was so big and rarely spoke, but she knew more about fighting the dead than just about anyone else there. She'd learned long ago that the best way to get things done was to just get it done. Okay, listen up, she said to the girls huddled up around her. We need to move fast. Some of those folks out there might be people you know, but you can't let that stop you. You hesitate, you're dead, you hear? A few of the girls had started to cry, but most of them nodded, their dark faces cast into deep shadow by the light filtering in through the windows. Are we going out there? asked one of the girls. Of course we're going out there, Sarah said. Otherwise we... The sound of the dead crashing through the door swallowed the rest of whatever she was about to say and quickly ended the argument. The undead poured into the room, their anguished moans sending a chill through Sue. For a single heartbeat, she was back in her family's farm, hiding in the woods as the dead overran the house, biting her fist to keep from crying out in fear. And in the next moment, she was reaching for a chair, slamming it to the ground hard enough to pull off the leg. Sue pushed a few of the smaller girls behind her and dashed forward, swinging the club down in a high arc, catching the nearest shambler in the temple. The makeshift weapon stayed in the creature's head, and it had barely hit the floor before Sue was on to the next one. Stay with me, Sue yelled as she cleared a path through the dead trying to crowd into the room. Their fingers tangled in Sue's sleeves and her skirt, their grasping hands and gaping mouths desperate for a taste of her. Sue was determined that they would stay hungry. On your left, came a call, and the shambler next to Sue fell to the ground, his body cleaved in half diagonally from shoulder to hip by scythe. The woman holding the weapon drew up short, halting the swing that would have come for Sue's own neck. Susan, very good improvisation, the woman said. Thank you, Miss Duncan, said Sue. You got another one of those? The woman tossed the scythe to Sue, who caught it easily, dropping the club. Take this one. There might be another, but we would be hard-pressed to get to the armory. The dead are thick in the building, and Miss Preston is gone, and along with her, the keys to the armory. Our best bet is to see if we can get to the weapon shed outdoors. Clear a path for us to work, dear? Yes, ma'am. Sue turned, swinging the scythe and clearing the dead. There was something satisfying about the way a head separated from a body, the skin tearing, the vertebra parting. Sue was no stranger to killing the dead, and it wasn't work that she sought out. But when it did present itself, she was of a mind to take pride in the task. It was something her mama would have wanted. Sue made her way out of the room and down toward the end of the hall, swinging the scythe in a wide arc. 
She was tall, and her reach was long, and in no time her hands were covered by the black sticky blood of the dead, and the hall was almost clear. The girls came out of their sleeping quarters, some sobbing, others looking around warily. Miss Duncan adjusted her weaponry. Girls, those of you who have passed your first practicum, come get a weapon. Even though she'd handed Sue the scythe, the handle long and smooth and the curved blade wicked sharp, Miss Duncan still had an arsenal strapped to her body. Sickles, several knives, two six-shooters, a rifle, and two swords. Just the sight of her made Sue grin. Things were starting to look up. "'What's the plan, Miss Duncan?' Sarah asked, taking one of the swords. "'Out of the house, head for the city. The rail line will help us navigate our way to Baltimore,' Miss Duncan said, handing the weapons to the girls strong enough and experienced enough to wield them. There weren't nearly enough girls or weapons. "'Where's everyone else?' One of the girls, a first-year girl Sue didn't recognize, asked. Miss Duncan cleared her throat. <clears> throat. Let's keep moving, and let's avoid the south end of the building. It was answer enough. The dead were merciless. Sue took up the lead without anyone asking. She was eldest, lead girl that now all the others were gone. First Jane McKean and Catherine Devereaux, gone after getting hired out at the mayor's house, and now nearly half the school. She should be sad but the restless dead didn't leave much space for regrets, not when Sue was much more worried about surviving the night. Their motley crew, mostly completely unarmed and little more than children, made their way down the hall and through the kitchen. But when Sue made to open the door, she hesitated. From the other side of the door came a scrabbling and a chorus of moans that seemed like more than the handful of dead that had been in the hallway. The dead on the other side of the door pushed against it and the wood groaned from their weight. It wouldn't hold for long. Miss Duncan, we got to go back the other way, through the windows in the sleeping quarters. Sue stood before the door, and a powerful fear took hold of her. She gripped the scythe so hard that her hand ached. This was no usual pack of dead, lost and opportunistic. This was something more, and Sue had a feeling that if they were to open the door, their end would be written in the gnashing of teeth, and their lifeblood spilled upon the fine wood of the hallway. Understood, Sue. Let's backtrack, ladies. Back toward the sleeping quarters, Miss Duncan said, turning and ushering the girls back the way they'd come. That should have been the end of it. They should have retraced their steps and headed back to the safety of the bedroom, removing the bars and scampering out to freedom. But a low, echoing growl came down the hallway. There, blocking their forward progress, was the headmistress, Miss Preston. Miss Preston had been a massive woman in life, and in death, she was just as imposing. Her pale skin caught the small bit of light that filtered in from the windows, the moonlight reflecting off of her teeth. The front of the woman's nightshirt was stained with blood, testifying that she too had been caught unawares. But beyond being obviously dead, there was something fundamentally wrong with Miss Preston. It took Sue a moment to realize what she was seeing, but once she did, a powerful revulsion ripped through her, leaving nausea in its wake. Half of Miss Preston's face was missing. The skull picked clean. Behind Miss Preston were the girls from the other room down the hall. Sue backpedaled at seeing so many of her friends, their steps uneven and awkward, a shambler's low groan coming out of their mouths. But there was no time to panic. They were caught between the proverbial rock and a hard place. This way, came a small voice, and Sue looked to see Ruthie, the youngest girl at Miss Preston's, waving them toward a side door propped open with just her foot. She held an overly large knife, and the thick black blood of the dead coated her nightclothes. We can go out the French doors. Go, Sue said, waving the girls without weapons toward little Ruthie. They didn't need to be told twice. The girls scrambled past Ruthie and out the door, which led to the cellar. Sue didn't know how they'd make it out of that room but there were few people who knew the layout of Miss Preston's better than Ruthie. Miss Duncan didn't run. Instead, she moved forward toward the dead, swinging sickles with a patient and practiced arm. There wasn't enough room for more than one person to work in the hallway, so Sue let Miss Duncan get to work while the rest of the girls hurried past Ruthie. Sarah had just slipped through the doorway, her expression making it clear that she had no intention of helping when the wood of the kitchen door gave way at the far end of the hallway, letting in a mass of shamblers from the kitchens. Miss Duncan, we gotta move, Sue said, swinging the scythe in a wide arc and backing toward the door. 
She took off the head of three of the dead with a single swing, lifting the scythe up and around her head and circling it back around for the new shamblers that appeared in their wake. Beyond them, so many were dead, more than Sue had ever seen in her life. And for a moment, raw panic threatened to overwhelm her. They couldn't survive against these odds. They had to run. Sue grabbed the side door and the back of Miss Duncan's dress as the instructor backed up, trying to keep the dead at arm's length. We gotta run, Miss Duncan, Sue said, ducking through the door. Miss Duncan followed, as well as a number of the dead, their grasping hands reaching through the space between the door and the jam. Sue dropped her scythe and put all of her weight behind closing the door, grunting with effort. Miss Duncan cut the hands off a few of the dead, removing them from the gap so that Sue could fully close the door. They had just managed to get the door shut, lodging a chair under the knob so that the dead would have a harder time following when screams echoed from the far end of the basement and the room that lay at the top of another set of stairs. If we survive this night, it'll be a miracle, Miss Duncan said. She pushed back a few loose tendrils of hair, leaving a smear of shambler blood on her forehead. Sue ignored Miss Duncan and headed toward the sound of the scream. Now that they were out of the cellar and in the room, Sue could see that it was what her friend Jane always called the ballroom. Not that there had ever been any balls at Miss Preston's, but sometimes, in the winter, they did their combat drills inside when it snowed. What happened? Sue asked as she approached. A few of the girls were crying, and even little Ruthie, who clearly had already been through an ordeal, looked shaken. Look, Ruthie said, pointing out to the grass beyond the windows. Moonlight painted the grounds with silvery light. The ballroom windows didn't have curtains, and the glass stretched floor to ceiling, so it was impossible to miss what lay just beyond the glass. The dead. At least a hundred, maybe more, shambling toward the school. I thought Baltimore County was free of the dead, one of the girls whispered, her voice heavy with disbelief. Looks like that ain't true, Sue said. For a moment, she bitterly wished her friend Jane were there. Jane would know what to do. Jane always had a plan, no matter what. But Jane wasn't at Miss Preston's, and it was up to Big Sue to find a way out of the school. What do we do? One of the girls whispered. We run, Sue said. She reached down and pulled her dress back and then up and back around, tying the material up so it wouldn't tangle in her legs. Everyone, tie up your skirts like so. All of us with weapons will go first, clear as many dead as we can. The rest of you follow, keeping pace. You fall back, you get left. Sue is correct, Miss Duncan said, her jaw set. The longer we wait, the more the horde will build. We'll run out toward the road and set a course away from Baltimore. If there are this many dead here, the city will be surrounded. A few of the girls sniffled, but the tears from earlier weren't to be found. They could see what was at stake in the weaving drunken shapes crossing the lawn in the moonlight. It was time to run for their lives. Wedge formation with the unarmed girls in the center, Miss Duncan said. Sue, you have the best reach, so you take point. Guide us right to the road. We go quickly, but carefully. Mind your intervals and remember your training. A few of the girls nodded, but not much else was said. No one wanted to state the obvious. Not all of them would make it across the grass. In fact, none of them might make it across the grass. The girls tied up their skirts, and once everyone was ready to go, Sue turned to Miss Duncan. You ready, miss? Miss Duncan nodded. Lead the way, Sue. Sue squared her shoulders and held her head high. Then, with much care, she broke the glass and knocked out the loose pieces before vaulting out of the window. The grass was only a few feet below the sill, so Sue didn't have far to fall, which was a good thing. The dead scented her immediately, running over, their moans loud and hungry. Sue didn't give them a chance to reach her. She began to swing, up and across, trying to separate as many heads from the dead as she could. The key to the scythe was to get the rhythm down. The weapon was meant for clearing, not necessarily killing the dead, although at Sue's height, she was able to easily separate heads from bodies. The dead gathered closer, but Sue only focused on the ones directly within her reach, letting the girls to the left and right of her take care of the rest. Sarah was on the left, and Sue saw her swing her sword with ruthless efficacy. Miss Preston's girls were the best at killing the dead, even the hard-headed ones. For a moment, it seemed like things were finally going right, that escaping Miss Preston's would be as easy as just swinging a scythe, but that was before Sarah let out a blood-curdling scream and Sue saw her go down. 
Later, Sue would remember Sarah's insistence that she wasn't there to herd cats, and that she could get there faster by herself. Sue didn't know what had happened, but one moment Sarah was running along with the rest of the group, and the next she was veering toward the trees, swinging her sword one-handed, and abandoning the rest of the girls to the mercy of the dead. Only, the dead are never so easy to avoid. Shamblers chased Sarah as she sprinted headlong for the tree line on the edge of the property. The barrier fences there should have kept the dead out, but at some point in the night, they'd come down, but it didn't matter. Halfway to the trees, Sarah tripped, and the dead never tolerate such a mistake. A chorus of dismayed cries went up as the girls watched the dead swarm Sarah, burying her beneath their weight. The sounds of their feeding echoed loudly across the yard, drowning out everything else. Keep swinging, Sue called, her voice rising over all else. There was no time to grieve, to lose heart. They would mourn the loss later, if they survived. To the road, to the road! The other girls took up the call, and inch by inch, foot by foot, they slaughtered the dead, severing necks and clearing the way until they made their way to the edge of the grounds and to the road beyond. The way was mostly clear, although a few dead stumbled toward them from the direction of Baltimore. Miss Duncan gained the road, little Ruthie behind her. The rest of the girls followed, some of them clinging to knives and revolvers most likely salvaged from the fallen dead. Something must have happened in Baltimore, Miss Duncan said in between deep heaving breaths. We have to stay away from the horde. We go south toward the rail lines. With some luck, there will be a train. Sue, please lead the way. Let's go, girls. Sue hefted her scythe and made her way to the front of the line. As they walked, the letter tucked inside of her shirt crinkled. Sue decided that she quite liked the sound. It was a good reminder that she was still alive. I don't know about y'all, but that story makes me want more short stories in the Dread Nation universe. Give at Justina Ireland a holler on Twitter if you enjoy the story and make sure you buy the novel or request it from your local library. A link to purchase Dread Nation is in the show notes. On a slightly more personal note, I want to thank all of you who supported our Indiegogo campaign. We couldn't do this without you. And thanks to Justina, who offered to write this story for us and give a story critique away to a lucky contributor. Don't forget, we want to secure a second season of Nightlight so we can feature more Black horror and pay more Black authors. If you're able, we would greatly appreciate you becoming a patron on Patreon at patreon.com slash nightlightpod. And if you can't contribute financially, we appreciate every tweet, like, share, and especially reviews on iTunes. Thanks so much for your support. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Happy Friday the 13th, horror fam. To celebrate this holiday for horror fans, we've got a special bonus episode for you. Two stories of love and revenge to make you feel special. First up is a story from Monique L. Desir. Monique lives in Florida with her husband and three sons. Her best story ideas come from dreams and sometimes nightmares. She loves to binge watch investigative forensic shows and dance so that she can have seconds on cake. Here's her story, Hide Your Love Away. Hide Your Love Away by Monique L. Desir. Don't you dare tell me you love me when your actions scream you hate even to see me smile. I warned you what would happen if you ever hit me. Too bad you thought I was playing. Hmm. You think this is funny? Well, look at who's on top now. That's what I call funny. Did I tell you about how my mother died? Oh, wow, you're just full of jokes tonight. No, she's not a bitch, my dear. Neither am I. You're only saying that because you're pissed, and I get it. I don't blame you. It's hard to move when you're tied up like that with a coffin for your bed. I'm good at tying knots. I'm good at everything I do because my mommy told me, passionate and proud in her Jamaican patois, whatever you do, gal, do it to the best of your ability. Show them you're better. 
even if it's sweeping the kitchen floor. Or in this case, shoveling dirt. Did I tell you that mommy used to hide wads of money around the house? In her pantyhose, tucked in neat rows beside her panties. Socks, too. Even in the DVD cases of rom-coms, like There's Something About Mary and Deliver Us from Eva. But the best hiding place was within the pages of books. I love books, so when I found two $20 bills so fresh and crisp I had to lick my fingers to pry them apart, I knew she wasn't hiding her cash stash from me. Her latest boyfriend, let's call him Billy, had beat her often. During one beating, I remember him straddling her, blood splattering from her face as he punched her dark brown face black and blue. Thud. One fist. Thud, 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 douche. A rapid boxer's pummel to her chin and blood smearing everywhere, its coppery scent infiltrating my senses with fear and disgust. It drove me from the room, and I hid in the closet, praying that she would live. Of course she did, and he apologized profusely the next day, only to cheat on her a week later. And she'd spent weeks crying that her blood test would come back negative. I was too young then to understand that negative results were a positive thing. Unfortunately, the results came back positive. She died when I was 18, succumbing to a four-letter illness. 18, I was old enough to be legally called an adult, old enough to move on with my own life, or even old enough to pursue her dreams and mine, but not old enough to understand what it means to carry the burden of forgiving and forgetting. And then I started hiding things in men's drinks, under the seats of their cars. Nothing that would kill them, mind you, but just a little something-something to let them know I know who they are and what I'm about. I've gotten bolder, and now I hide compromising photos and drug paraphernalia in their pockets, in their wallets. I learn their passwords, hijack their computers by storming firewalls, and hid Trojan horses within the motherboards of their personal laptops and desktops. These kind of men are easily coddled, so ignorant in their arrogance that they freely surrender compromising information to a sweet smile and swaying hips, paying no mind to lying lips. Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? Sometimes. Then I met you, my binary star. You gravitated to me, a black hole, and fell hard inside my event horizon of solitude and secrets. Or was it I who was drawn to you, in awe of you, amazed by you, a sun god incarnation with the curl of a thousand spiral galaxies, the glory of your tightly coiled hair? I should have known better. You should have known better. I'm a Pisces, straddling the worlds of life and death, and you're a Scorpio who broke my heart. So allow me the pleasure of crushing your universe. Soon, you'll be pushing daisies. Nah, that sounds too fairy tale romantic. Let's say it like it is. The worms crawl in, the worms crawl out. You want me to stop laughing? Please. It's funny, and my arms are sore. Digging's hard work. Shit, I'm taking a break. What'd you say? Watch you die? Shush, don't talk like that. I'm not that cruel. Here, see this coffin lid? Once I close it, carbon dioxide will build up so much that you'll just pass out. Comatose, a painless death. Even in justice, I give you mercy. Just stop struggling. Hey, you should really stop yelling. The night is quiet and the sky is filled with stars twinkling in Morse code. You're not alone. Yes, quiet now. That's right. Don't waste your breath. Besides, no one will know where you've gone. You're a drifter, my dear. A wanderer. A lone wolf. And remember, didn't I tell you? I'm good at hiding things, and now I'm hiding you. I'm going to guess that Monique's three sons will grow up to be fine partners and that her husband only has eyes for her. Tell Monique what you thought of her story. Tweet using the hashtag HiddenLove. One of you will win a print of your choice of the Pretty Deadlies collection of illustrations by Katie at Good For Her. A link to her store is in the show notes. Our second story is one written by yours truly. This was my first sale, so in a way, it's one of my first loves. 
Here's the Dead Circle, originally published in Creepy Campfire magazine. The Dead Circle by Tanya Thompson What are we going to do? We can't afford to lose these cattle. The man ignored his wife and stared out across his pasture. Smack in the middle was a perfect circle that looked like God had drawn it with a compass and colored it with black earth. Five dead cattle and a couple of lifeless buzzards were scattered inside. No flies buzzed around the carcasses. No crickets chirped from within. Not a single thing moved inside. Even the stench of death shunned the circle. Vultures flew overhead, but dared not land. They had already seen two of their brothers drop to their deaths when they swooped within ten feet of the corpses. They circled around like the cattle inside were a once-in-a-lifetime chance at the scavenger equivalent of a filet mignon. Joe looked at his wife. Why do you always have to panic, just like a woman? When she didn't look up at him, he scoffed. Go catch me that stray cat that keeps eating up your garden. What? Why? she asked. She finally looked up, her eyes wide with fear. She looked back down and fidgeted with her dress, unable to bear the transparent hate on his face. Stop asking questions, Mabel. Just go do it. I ain't got time for your nonsense. All right, Joe. Mabel skulked away. She knew better than to argue. Joe was the type of man who believed that his wife should love, honor, and most of all, obey. And bring me a beer, Joe said, not bothering to turn around. Yes, Joe. When Mabel returned with his beer, Joe was sitting in the dirt, staring into the circle. She sat the bottle next to him, careful not to call attention to herself, then turned, quiet as a church mouse, to tiptoe away. The dry, parched grass betrayed her, announcing each of her light steps. Where's the cat? Mabel was meek as ever. I set a trap for him. I'm about to go check it. God damn it, Mabel, can't you do anything right? I swear I gotta do every goddamn thing myself around here. Joe stood up and pushed Mabel aside. Not sure if she should follow him or not, she opted to walk behind him at a distance. As they neared the garden, she saw the cat poking around the snare she'd set up. Not wanting Joe to scare the cat away before it got snagged, she walked quickly on the balls of her feet to catch up to him. He's taking the bait. Don't scare him off, Joe, she whispered. Joe spun around with a look of fire and revulsion in his eyes. Shut up, woman, you're going to scare him off with that Edith Bunker voice of yours. Mabel flinched more at the look in his eyes than the words he spoke. She had heard that insult at least three times this week. It barely even registered anymore. Joe clenched his fist but turned away before he hit her. The last thing he needed right now was a crying, hysterical woman. She would get it sooner or later. She always did. Just then, the cat screeched. It was caught in the snare. Joe smiled the devilish smile that Mabel had once found sexy, but now saw it for what it truly was. Delight in another living being's suffering. She often wondered if she had just been blind to his evil in those early days, or if he had truly been a good man worn down by a tough life. She chose to believe the latter because she couldn't reconcile with being that naive and stupid. Joe's walk had a bit more purpose now. Mabel stood where she was, knowing that whatever it was he had planned, he probably didn't want her to take an uninvited part in it. He walked past the cat and into their little shed. A few moments later, he came out shaking a dusty old potato sack. Puffs of dust floated in the wind toward her. Joe stomped back over the trap and snatched the cat up by the scruff of its neck, that gleeful smile still on his face. He dropped the cat into the sack and walked back toward the circle with a determined stride. Mabel, more curious than afraid, followed Joe. She again kept her distance because she knew what was good for her. Joe stood a few feet from the edge of the circle. Go get me a rake and that spool of string for the weed eater. Pleased that her decision to follow him was the right one, she smiled and said, Yes, Joe. Since she had gotten in trouble for being slow before, she ran to the shed like the devil himself was on her heels to grab the things Joe had asked for. She knew he wanted to send the cat into the circle, but refused to allow that notion to take root in her mind. When she returned, Joe was once again fixated on that circle, oblivious to the world around him. Here's your stuff, Joe. Thank you, Joe mumbled. He barely noticed she was there. 
The circle had captivated him, beckoned him to come closer. Mabel looked at him like he'd grown another set of arms. Joe never thanked anybody for anything. He felt like he was just getting what belonged to him anyway. No point in thanking people for making things right in the world. Mabel stepped a bit closer, afraid to draw his attention, but intent to do exactly that. Joe, you're raking string. He acted as if he hadn't heard a word she had said. Mabel took a few more steps until she was just a foot away from him. She sucked in a deep breath as if the air itself would give her courage and tapped him on the shoulder. Feeling a bit more bold, she repeated, You're raking string. Joe blinked a couple of times like he was trying to awake from a daydream. Oh, thanks. Mabel stared, wondering what had gotten into him. Joe took the rake and string from her, leaving her with her hands in the air. He walked away from the circle and yanked the cat out of the bag. Feral and furious at the inconvenience, it screeched and clawed. Goddamn cat, you're lucky I don't break your full neck right now. Mabel, cut off enough string to go around this cat's neck. Mabel stepped away from the circle, grabbed Joe's knife, and cut off the string he'd asked for. Now wrap it round his neck. Faced with the reality of hurting an innocent animal, she was angry for the first time in years. She thought she had lost her capacity for anger a long time ago. Joe had enough ire for the both of them. She figured adding to it might cause them both to burst into flames. Despite the sick feeling in her stomach, she had to press on. She couldn't stop now. Hurry up, we ain't got all day, damn it, Joe said, sick of her being so slow all the time. That was enough to spur Mabel into action. Although she was still reluctant, she was determined not to show it. She wrapped the string around the cat's neck. Now make it a noose. I'm going to use this rake and that string to make a leash. Mabel did as she was told, anxious to get this done. Joe put the rake through one of the holes in the string and pulled up. Satisfied that the cat was properly snared, he dragged it toward the circle. The cat fought him and the string the whole way. Joe paused about two feet from the circle and looked down at the beast. How long should he leave the cat in the circle? How many times could it go in and come back out alive? He decided he had a lot of testing to do before he would know exactly how this circle operated, but he had to do it if he hoped to salvage anything from his cattle. He pushed the feral thing out to the very edge of the circle. The cat stopped its fruitless frenzied attack on Joe to sniff at the circle. Just like Joe... The cat was now hypnotized. Joe pushed the cat partially into the circle, hind legs out and front end inside. And nothing happened. The cat just continued to sniff around. Joe pushed the cat all the way into the circle. And still, nothing happened. Was it because he was attached to something outside of the circle? Just when he was about to pull the cat out, it went limp. He stared at it for a few seconds, searched for any signs of life, then pulled the cat to him. He was about to put his hand on the cat to feel for a heartbeat, a rise and fall of its body, but the cat started to flop around like a fish out of water. Stunned, he backed away, but not before the cat scratched him across his face. Furious, he grabbed the cat by the neck and threw it, rake and all, into the circle. The cat landed on its feet and took off running, dragging the rake behind it. It didn't make it far before it went limp and fell on its side. Joe approached the circle with uncharacteristic caution. He slowly bent down, eyes trained on the cat, and grabbed the handle of the rake with the tips of his fingers, careful not to touch any part of the circle. Mabel watched him with apprehension. Joe kept working at the rake to pull it out, but it was heavy and he couldn't get a good grip with just his fingertips. Mabel crept forward, hopeful that Joe's concentration was fixed on the retrieval of the rake and that he wouldn't hear the grass crunch under her feet. She was just a foot away when he finally got the rake out far enough to grab the handle and haul the cat back out of the circle. He stood up so suddenly that Mabel just knew he had realized what she was about to do, but he only looked annoyed that she was in his way again. Joe sat down and watched the cat, anxious for it to spring back up as it did before. Mabel sat quietly a few feet away, mesmerized by the effect the circle had on him. Joe had never cared about anything but beer and football. Science wasn't even on his radar. He had certainly never been interested in any kind of clumsy scientific experiment, but the circle called to him and begged him to discover its secrets. 
Just as Mabel turned her attention to the cat, it sprung up again. Aha! Joe hopped to his feet, too, and clapped his hands together. He was giddy with delight at the cat's resurrection. Do you think it was dead, Joe? Joe had forgotten that Mabel was even there. He turned to her and scowled. It weren't breathing. How's it going to be alive if it ain't breathing, Mabel? I swear, sometimes I wonder about you. The question you should be asking is how it died and then came back. This is like some pet cemetery shit right here. He remembered from the movie that when things came back, they didn't come back right, and turned back to the cat like it would eat his face off at any moment. The cat just sat there licking itself, oblivious to Joe and Mabel, and looking for all the world like a normal cat. But Mabel realized that the cat acted more like a normal domesticated cat, not the feral cat it was. Death seemed to have tamed it a bit. She wondered how long that might last. Would it stay like this forever? Would it return to its feral state after a while? What would happen if Joe died in that circle and came out? What would happen if he went in that circle and didn't come out at all? Mabel looked up at Joe as though she feared that he had somehow heard her last thought. He was still busy watching the cat, ignorant of her treacherous notions. Feeling vulnerable to be looking so far up at him, Mabel stood. That got Joe's attention. Help me with these cattle. We gotta get them out of here and see if they come back too. If they don't, we gotta butcher them before they go bad. Mabel looked at him expectantly. Joe stared at her, exasperated with her lack of intelligence. He needed to make sure that she knew he was the boss around here. You're gonna go in there and put a rope around the cattle and I'll drag them out with the tractor. Mabel was horrified. But Joe, the cat wasn't in there for ten seconds before it went limp. I can't go in there. If I did, I wouldn't be able to move fast enough to get the rope around him. Pointing out a flaw in his plan only made Joe angrier. Saving face, he said, I swear, woman, you can't do nothing. Mabel looked down to appease Joe, but the thought of him going into that circle was eclipsing her submissiveness. Blood rushed to her head. Her violent heartbeat drowned out the sound of her breathing. Joe yelled at her, but she couldn't be bothered to listen. All she could think of was Joe inside that circle either dead or docile, didn't matter which, long as he went in that circle. I've got an idea. Mabel's words and the urgency in her voice stunned Joe. She knew not to speak unless she was spoken to. Well, out with it, Joe said. Well, you're stronger and faster. You had a good idea, but I'm too frail and slow to get them roped before the paralysis sets in. You can do it, and if you can't, I'll just pull you back out with the tractor and we'll come up with another idea. Ego and instinct battle in Joe's mind. His instinct told him that being paralyzed or dead wasn't worth it. Nor was he the type to go along with someone else's idea, especially a woman's, especially Mabel's. But she was right for once. He was superior. She could never do anything right. If he wanted to get those cattle out of that circle, he was going to have to take care of it himself, no matter what the idea was. And the idea really was his, just the role swap to make more sense. Well, what are you waiting for? Go get the rope and the tractor. Why did he always have to hold her hand through every little thing? By the time Mabel finally came back with the tractor, Joe had convinced himself that he was the only one capable of rescuing his cattle, and Mabel had convinced herself that she was doing the right thing. After Joe tied the middle of the thick rope around himself and one end to the trailer's hitch, he made a noose with the other end to go around the neck of his cow. That done, he announced that he was ready. Soon as I get that rope around that cow's neck, you get moving, you hear? Yes, Joe, Mabel replied. Joe decided to do a little test before he walked headlong into that circle and put a fingertip just across the border. He felt no different, so he pushed his whole hand in. Now he was downright courageous. The circle wouldn't have an effect on him. His mama always told him he was special, and now he knew he was. But he wasn't stupid. He was still going to be quick about it. Before he lost his nerve, he rushed in toward the cow closest to the edge and wrapped the rope around its neck. He turned to whistle at Mabel to signal it was done, but she had her back turned to him. Damn that woman, he thought. He started to feel heavy, too heavy to stand up. It felt like he had lead in his legs and an anchor tied to his chest. Before he realized what was going on, he was face down in the dead earth. Mabel kept her eyes straight ahead, afraid to look at her husband and what might be happening to him. She just repeated Psalm 23 with special attention to 
Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. Finally, she turned around. He was still. She stared at his back and looked for evidence of breath, but didn't see any. She hadn't really considered her plan fully. Up until this moment, she was focused on action, afraid that if she took time to think, she would talk herself out of it. Now she wondered how long she should leave him in the circle. What if he had to stay in longer than the cat because he was bigger? What about brain damage? That thought was enough for her to decide to pull him out. The last thing she wanted was to be saddled with more responsibility where it came to him. She inched the tractor forward, making sure the rope was still securely around both Joe and the cow, and nothing was coming loose. Mabel let out the breath she hadn't realized she was holding. Joe and the cow were finally out, but she stayed on the tractor and waited. She didn't want to be anywhere near him when he woke up. If he woke up. If he did wake up, and he was the same, he would throw her in that circle permanently for what she'd tried to do. She looked over and saw the cat. It was stock still. Flies buzzed around it at a pace that mirrored her frantic heartbeat. Then she heard him groan. Well, he wasn't dead. Hopefully, he wasn't brain dead. Joe? Joe, are you all right? Joe fumbled to put his cat back on. Hmm? Did we get the cow out? He had just died, and he was worried about the cow. Maybe he didn't see her ignore him after all. Mabel inched forward, afraid to look in Joe's eyes. Yes, we did, Joe. Your plan worked. Is cow alive? Um, I'm not sure. I checked on you first. Well, damn it, check to see if the cow's alive. The old Joe was back. Mabel walked over toward the cow and put her hand on its ribs. No telltale rise and fall. No life. It's not alive, Joe. God damn it. All that work in the damn thing is still dead. Mabel couldn't let him give up on his plan. She needed him to go back in that circle. She started to walk back toward him. It might take a little longer for it to come back. It's been like that for hours. Just as she finished her sentence, Joe slung his hat to the ground. He looked at the cow with more fury than he had ever had for Mabel. What is it, Joe? It's rotting. Like it's been dead for days, not hours. Look at it. The goddamn cow is rotting. I can see it rotting. Mabel looked over at the cow. It was rotting so fast it looked like it was on a time-lapse camera. The cow's corpse had ballooned. Vultures picked at its flesh, rewarded for their patience. She looked back at Joe and gasped. His skin sagged as fast as the cow decayed. Age spots peppered a quickly forming bald patch and his hair faded from brown to solid gray. It had worked after all. Not the way that she wanted, but it worked. The circle was aging him. She realized the cat hadn't calmed down because the circle made it docile. It was because it made the cat old. The cows had been in the circle long enough to die. Things stayed frozen in the circle, but when they came out, it was like Mother Nature was on fast forward. A smug smile spread across Mabel's face. That old crone in town was right. Mabel did have magic in her blood. The hex bag she buried in the pasture while Joe slept wasn't perfect, but it did a fine job for a beginner's spell. Joe didn't look a day younger than 90. Thanks so much for joining us for our bonus episode. We love you. We have one more gift for you, a Nightlight t-shirt. Leave a review on iTunes or Podchaser and forward it to merch at nightlightpod.com. That's M-E-R-C-H at nightlightpod.com. Tonight, we'll do a drawing to determine which one of you will become one of us. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at nightlightpod. We're also now on Instagram at nightlightpod and on Facebook at facebook.com slash nightlightpod. We'll be announcing some additional Friday the 13th fun. Last, I'd like to thank all of our patrons and supporters on Indiegogo. It's because of you that this podcast exists. You have our eternal love. We'll see you on Tuesday for our regular episode.
And that's this week's show. Please join us again when Jack shows up, at least I hope he can, for our second spooky tale in the Sonic Society. Until then, I'm David Alt. Please check the website for Nightlight's notes and send me supportive tweets at David Alt. Take care. has been a Sonic Cinema production. Every other week, right here on Sunday Showcase on the Mutual Audio Network, you get a brand new episode of Bells in the Battery, for which we apologize. However, if for some reason you can't get enough Bells in the Battery, and after you've asked a professional therapist for help, head over this way on Fridays. Friday Follies has all the old bells in the battery, going back to 2006, you know, back in the prehistoric days when it sounded like this to get on the internet. <laughs> anyway, if you want to catch the old ancient bells in the battery, catch it on Friday Follies right here on the Mutual Audio Network. And we apologize in advance for that as well.